The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, as the children have demonstrated for us, we celebrate the resurrection today, and we go to God's Word to hear the account of that. Let me invite you to take a Bible near you. There's one in the pew rack, a blue Bible. Grab a Bible and open with us to Mark 16. Mark chapter 16. It's the last chapter of Mark, and we will hear the narrative of the resurrection this morning on the Lord's Day, Easter Sunday. What a great day to hear the Scriptures tell us that the tomb is empty and Christ is risen. Mark 16, we're going to be reading Mark 16, that's 1 through verse 8. If you don't have a Bible, see one hopefully nearby you, grab one or share with someone around you if they need one. But we're going to be reading from Mark 16. Uh, just to let you know, we're also going to be turning in a couple places in the book of Romans, so do keep your Bible open. We're going to see what the scriptures say to us about the good news of Easter today. So if you've got your Bible open, Let's pray together and we'll hear the scriptures read and proclaimed. Heavenly Father, what a great joy it is for us to be gathered together on this special day when we hear again the promises of the resurrection of the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. And so, Lord, as we hear the word again proclaimed to us, may we receive it freshly with love and faith in our hearts given to us by the Holy Spirit. And so as you moved Mark to record these words for us. May your same Spirit move upon our hearts to believe and our minds to be illuminated to receive the truth of the Scriptures today. Bless us with faith in hearing and faith in believing and faith in obeying, we pray in the resurrected Savior's name, even Jesus Christ. Amen. And now hear the Word of God, Mark 16, and the first eight verses under the heading, The Resurrection. This is the Word of God. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Uh, Do keep your Bible open there. And as I said, we'll be moving through some places in Mark and the book of Romans today as well. It is a lovely thing that Mark records the the thoughts, the intentions of the women as they go to the tomb on Easter morning because they're worried about how they're going to roll away the stone, but they bring the spices even though they don't have a complete plan how to roll the stone away. They're committed to Christ. They're committed to seeing the burial ritual completed, and they do not expect what they find, which is a very important point of emphasis for the first century. Nobody really expected Jesus 
to come alive from the dead, even though he told them. But that's interesting that the angels then tell the women, these faithful women, they receive the first announcement and the direction. Look at verse 6 again. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Look at the end of verse 7 too, where they say, There you will see him, just as he told you. Just as he told you. Now that is a reference to the fact that in the book of Mark and through the gospel narratives, Jesus predicts his arrest, his false trial, his death, his burial, his resurrection. He predicts all of it three times. You want to look at them with me? Let's go back, first of all, to Mark chapter 8. Go back to Mark 8 and look at verse 31. Mark 8 verse 31 is the first time that Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. Uh, in Mark 8:31, it says that he, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise. Jesus said so. He says so a second time in chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 30 through 32, where Jesus again foretells his death and resurrection. Mark 9, 30 says, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, there it is, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And finally, the third time is in Mark 10. Mark chapter 10 at verse 33 a fuller explanation this time, but Jesus foretells his death a third time, Mark 10:33, saying, "See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise." So the angels greet the women and say, "It's happened just as he said. And when he said it, he meant it." That Jesus would die and rise. Now, back in Mark 16, just a couple of things to notice, and then we will camp out on one particular point as we celebrate it today. Notice how the angels say to the women in verse 7, You're here, you receive the announcement, the good news, but this is what you must do in verse 7. Uh, verse 7, but go and tell uh, his disciples. The women came faithfully, the disciples presumably are still cowering about in Jerusalem. Because for all they know, the man that they've been following and had committed their lives to, the one that they thought the Messiah, is dead. And the angel said, no, go and, and tell. I don't want you to notice that the angel says that Jesus still claims the disciples as his own. You see that? Go and tell his disciples. Jesus in resurrecting victory, still claims the disciples as his own. We should emphasize there that Jesus Christ is not resurrected in vengeance upon his disciples who scattered. You see that oftentimes in popular culture, comic books and stories and movies, vengeance narratives. You failed me and I'm coming back to meet out upon you my anger. Not Jesus. Jesus is resurrected in mercy, calling His disciples His own. 
And this is what we're going to emphasize, especially this morning. Again, in verse 7, the angels tell the women, but go and tell his disciples and Peter. Don't you love that? And Peter. Peter is singled out. Peter is properly included as a part of the disciples. The angels just could have said the disciples and Peter would have been included in that. But Peter is singled out. Tell the disciples and Peter. Why? There is such glory in this. Now, Peter is a significant disciple to be sure. Actually, in Mark chapter 1, uh, Peter and his brother Andrew are the first disciples that are called when Jesus says in Mark 1, 16 and 17 to Peter and to Andrew, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That was Peter from the very beginning. He was one of the very first disciples. Peter is often among the disciples, often named as a leader. He's one of only three that gets to go up the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and see, as it were, the veil lifted back to see Jesus Christ in His glory. Peter is only uh, one of the three out of the twelve that gets to see that. He's special. But Peter is also, God bless him, oftentimes the one who's first to open his mouth with the wrong answer. The first one to speak up and totally miss the point. You can read about that all through the Gospel accounts, but especially, actually, when we saw the first uh, prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection in Mark 8, Jesus says, look, I'm going I'm to go to Jerusalem, and they're going to take me, and they're going to kill me, and then I'm going to rise. Peter takes Jesus aside, Mark 8 says, and Peter, can you believe it, rebukes Jesus. Peter says, you don't know what you're talking about, son of God, can you imagine? Peter rebukes Jesus. Now, for all those reasons, Peter is significant, but no doubt, the angels say, go and tell his disciples and Peter, because Peter is singled out here for all of his prominence, because he is the one who ought to have been most loyal to Jesus, but who we know from the narratives is the one who most blatantly denies Jesus. If you go back in Mark 14, Mark 14, 66 through the end of the chapter is the narrative there where Jesus is on trial, Peter is, as it were, kind of lurking in the shadows, looming in the background, following what's going on because he's interested, because he cares, but not really publicly invested, publicly interested. He's not standing with Jesus. He's off to the side in the shadows. Mark 14 at verse 66 says, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You, you were with Jesus, weren't you? In verse 68, it says, Peter denied it, saying, I neither know or understand what you mean. And then again in verse 70, again he denies any association with Jesus. And after a little while, it says, the bystanders again said to Peter, no, 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 yes you were, we saw you, you were with him, the Galilean. And then for the third time emphatically in verse 71, but he began, Peter, to invoke a curse on himself and to swear I do not know this man of whom you speak. Peter is swearing by the name of God that he does not know the Son of God. When it means invoke a curse, Peter is saying, if it's not true, you could kill me. I swear on my life, I don't know that man. Three times in verse 68, 70, 71, Peter denies Jesus. And then the last time Peter is mentioned there, in verse 72, 
Because he did what Jesus told him he was going to do. And Peter said, no, I would never do that. And he does. And we find him there at the end of chapter 14, breaking down and weeping. Peter, Peter the great disciple. Peter the leader among the disciples. Peter the one who confesses Christ as the Savior. And Jesus says, upon this confession I will build my church. But there is Peter saying, I would rather die than be associated with Jesus Christ. Now, what should we say about that? The angels say, go and tell the disciples and go tell Peter. Go tell Peter. Because where Peter could have been the ultimate example of someone rejected by Christ, saying to Peter, Peter, you rejected me before all people, and I reject you. Peter could have been the ultimate example of rejection, but instead he is the ultimate example of forgiveness, isn't he? Go tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell the denier that Jesus doesn't count his sins against him. There is forgiveness for Peter. The angels say, you go and tell and make sure Peter knows it. Jesus Christ is resurrected for mercy. The empty tomb means that God is full of mercy for us in Christ. Full of mercy for Peter. And so this is what we should say. This is what we should say about Christ and the resurrection where there's a lot of things that we could say. And I'll just be honest with you that Every preacher trembles about Easter because there's a lot of pressure and what do you say and there's so much to say. Listen, there's lots of stuff we could say. We could take the opportunity to defend the resurrection against attacks. And there are plenty of people who accuse the resurrection of just being a myth, being a false narrative, right? Just a story. We could defend it. It's easy to defend. The resurrection is easily defensible. We could attack the arguments We could also go to 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, if the resurrection isn't true, let me list all the things that are a problem for you. If you're a Christian and you say you're a Christian but the resurrection isn't true, among everything, you're just crazy. If the resurrection's not true. We could go there. Or we could take time to work out how Jesus' resurrection begins the inbreaking of the end times and the eschatological reality of the kingdom come to earth by virtue of Christ's resurrection, beginning a resurrection harvest that's going to be culminated when He returns, when all the dead will be raised. We could talk about that. The new bodies will receive. Look, there's so much to say about the resurrection, but this is what I want us to emphasize this morning. That for everything about the Christian faith that hinges on the resurrection, the Christian faith matters then for you as a Christian because of the wonderful benefits that you receive from having a resurrected Savior. This is what I want us to say. This means everything to Peter, the resurrection. It means everything to us. And so we will apply the resurrection today by saying this. Jesus Christ is risen for you. Jesus Christ is risen for you. So to say, what benefits do you receive from having a resurrected Savior? Christ died for you. On Good Friday, we emphasized that He was buried for you. And this morning, we want to emphasize that Christ is raised for you. The angel says, go and tell Peter that Christ is raised for him. We want to hear the gospel today as Christ raised for you. The good news of Easter, Christ is raised for you. Now, before we say what those benefits are, 
Our kids have the, this uh, Bible ABC book, and it really the ABCs are not just random words. They tell the narrative story of redemption through the ABCs. It's a great little piece. You know, children's books can really help adults, too, by the way. Uh, and for the letters, U and V, the Bible ABC books goes like this. And on the third day, God raised him, and the U is up from the grave. And the V follows with, so that we can have victory. And I love hearing my son say, victory. So what is the victory? What is the benefit? What is the wonderful victory that you receive from having a resurrected Savior? The answer for that, as we see, go and tell Peter, go and tell people like Peter that they have a resurrected Savior so that they can know exactly what. Let's say several things from the book of Romans. Go with me to Romans chapter 8. It's on page 944. And we're going to flip just a few places in Romans. We're going to go to Romans 8, and then we're going to start working sequentially for a few places and say very explicitly what the resurrected Savior means for Peter and means for people like Peter who have blown it, who have sinned, who think that they are outside of God's grace and He couldn't possibly forgive us. What does the resurrected Savior have to say about the victory we have in Christ? Well, first of all, Romans 8 verse 11 tells us, Romans 8.11 If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The Bible says that the same power that resurrected Jesus from the grave lives in the Christian believer by way of the Spirit of God who unites together the Christian and the Savior. Paul says, the Spirit dwells within you, and you are united to the resurrected Christ, and the joys and benefits and salvation and victory of the resurrected Christ is yours. What is the victory? Let's emphasize three things then. What do we receive in union with Christ, because the Holy Spirit dwells in us and the power of the resurrection dwells in us, the benefits that we receive from a resurrected Savior are these things. First of all, go to Romans chapter 4. And now we'll go in order. We'll go back 4, 6, and 8. And the three benefits are, I'll give them to you ahead of time, just keep track, make sure I'm going through them correctly. The benefits that you receive from having a resurrected Savior are these words that are fancy words in the Bible, but important words that you are justified and you are sanctified and you are glorified. Those are the benefits of a resurrected Savior that I want us to see. Christ is raised for you so that in union with the resurrected Savior, you have justification, sanctification, glorification. So first of all, Romans 4.25, we are justified in the risen Christ. We are justified in the risen Christ. Romans 4.25 says, pick up verse 24, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was, Paul says, delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Raised for our justification. Justification is God's legal declaration. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead because He was innocent. 
When the Father raises the Son from the dead, it is the Father's declaration that the Son is the Savior. He is innocent. He is not guilty. So He is raised. That means that when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, Paul says you are justified. Or that means the Father declares you not guilty. Christ is raised because He is the sinless Savior. The Son is declared not guilty. And when you trust in the Son, you are declared not guilty in the Son. Or the word justified. The penalty of sin is forgiven. Sin even as bad as Peter's sin. You know, Jesus didn't say the Son of Man can forgive all sins except Peter's sin. All sin can be forgiven by the resurrected Savior. Now, if you've ever received a, a confirmation letter that a, a debt or a mortgage is paid off, it's a wonderful thing, right? You have certification. The debt is answered for. The debt no longer hangs over your head by way of obligation. And the Gospel says that your debt is your sin. And Jesus is raised to declare that the sin has been paid for. The debt has been cleared. Such to say, to be justified is to be declared not guilty. And in Jesus Christ, you are not guilty. You are justified. We are justified in the risen Christ, first of all. And then secondly, go forward into Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 at verse 5. Not only are we justified by the risen Christ... Not only do we have the declaration, the forgiveness of our sins, we are also sanctified in the risen Christ. And that means that the legal declaration of the forgiveness of your sins in justification through sanctification is being worked out into a reality as you are transformed. You are sanctified in the risen Christ. Romans 6 at verse 5 says, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His... We shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you, verse 11, look at it very clearly. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in you. The benefits of a resurrected Savior, justification and sanctification. That means that we should, as Paul says there, consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Now notice the order. This is very important. Paul says, this is what Christ has done for you. He has died and risen. And now you, you must let not sin therefore reign in your body. Sanctification is the process by which we are made holy, by which the patterns of our sinful disobedience are transformed as we turn from, away from sin, turning towards Christ in repentance and faith, embracing Him and turning to a new obedience, turning away from sinful patterns and turning towards Christ. That's what sanctification means. And we can do that because Paul says, this is what Christ has done for you. Now you live for Him. 
And I want you to notice why that order is so important. The gospel is not do this so that God will love you. The gospel is not do this so that you will be made acceptable. The gospel is this is what Christ has done. Now you respond. Your obedience doesn't come first. It comes second. And that is because Jesus Christ sanctifies you in order to obey what is true comes first. And then you're told what to do. You're not told what to do in order to make it true. No, this is true. Now do this. That means that you grow in power and grow in spiritual strength to obey God and live for God, to not let sin reign in you, to stop doing the things that you don't want to do and that you hate doing and you wish you wouldn't do them. The resurrection of Christ sanctifies you to give you spirit-empowered strength to say no, to turn to Christ and away from sin. Think about it this way. It transforms you just like it transformed Peter. The Peter who denies Jesus in a small crowd, in Mark 14, is the same Peter who stands up in the early chapters of Acts in front of the entire city of Jerusalem to say, there is salvation in no other name, for there is no name under heaven or earth by which we must be saved. The Peter who denied Christ is transformed by the resurrection and sanctified, given spiritual strength and power to stand up and say, whoever you are, No matter what you've done, Jesus is a Savior. So we receive sanctification through the risen Christ. Justification, sanctification, and then thirdly, glorification. In Romans chapter 8 now, Romans 8 at verse 17, not only are we justified in the risen Christ, not only are we sanctified in the risen Christ, we are glorified in the risen Christ. Glorification is the finish line. Justification is God's declaration that we are forgiven. Sanctification is God's working out of that forgiveness and transforming us. But glorification means that now it's done. The work is totally done. Romans 8 at verse 17 says, And if children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him for this purpose, Paul says, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Jesus Christ is raised and then ascends in triumph. And Paul says that if you are a Christian believer, you will share in the benefits of His justification, being declared not guilty. You will share in the benefits of His sanctification, being transformed. And you will also share in the benefits of His glorification on the day when you, in heaven, never, ever, have to struggle with sin again. Where your old sinful flesh has been cast off and you're, can you believe it, no longer tempted. You will no longer struggle. You will no longer be fearful or doubt. You will receive a new body by way of the resurrection that will never get sick with eyes that don't need glasses and ears that don't need hearing aids and a body that never gets cancer. That's what glorification is. When at the end, the fullness 
of Christ's benefits are applied to you in the glories of eternal life. The presence of sin will be entirely gone. And let me tell you, none of us are there yet. None of us are there yet, but because we are justified, because we are being sanctified, we will be glorified. It is guaranteed. So says Paul in Romans 8. Look down at verse 30. Paul says this is a guarantee. Romans 8.30, For those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. God finishes what He starts. So this is what we should say as we go back to Mark 16, and we'll end there. That the good news of the resurrection is good news that the angels say, you make sure Peter knows it. You make sure Peter knows it. There's good news for Peter, good news for sinners, good news for you. Can I tell you very clearly? There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. Jesus is a good Savior, a full and complete Savior who forgives all the sins of those who come to Him. If you are a person who is convinced that you're different, you say, no, 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 you don't understand it's possible for me to outsin the grace of God. I want to say to you, no, it's not. You cannot outsin the grace of God. You are not stronger than the redeeming love of Jesus Christ raised from the grave. In fact, it's not that you are unqualified because you're a sinner. Your sin is exactly what qualifies you to be forgiven by the Savior. Christ is raised for you. If I had another hour, I would look every one of you in the eye and use your name. Christ is raised for you. A resurrected Savior. Jesus is raised for us, and by faith we share the benefits of His resurrected life. Justification, sanctification, glorification. And the concluding word of this is that as we go back to the garden and find the women seeing the empty tomb and hearing the angels announce, the angels tell the women, look, go and tell the disciples and Peter and this is what they say will happen. Go and meet Him. Go and meet Him. And then you'll see for yourself. This is what you will find. You will find forgiveness and restoration and transformation and eternal life. But loved ones, we must meet Him. We must go and meet Him. And we must go and see for ourselves. We must receive Christ for ourselves. We must confess with our own lips, Jesus Christ, my Savior. Jesus Christ died for my sins and was raised for my justification so I can be declared not guilty. The angel says, go and tell the disciples to see for themselves. You and I must go and say for ourselves, Jesus Christ, risen for me. Go and see Him, risen for you. Thanks be to God. What a wonderful Savior, risen for you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.